and welcome to the Talking Techniques podcast. Brought to you by Biotechniques, this show brings you the latest from the frontiers of the life sciences, straight from the people exploring them. I'm your host, Biotechniques digital editor Tristan Free, and in this episode, I'll be taking a focused look at the part PCR has played in the diagnosis of COVID-19, the strengths and limitations of the technique, and any key tips for those looking to improve the sensitivity of their PCR diagnostics. Here to help me do this is Tyler Miller, Senior Clinical Pathology Resident and Research Fellow at MGH and the Broad Institute. Hi Tyler. Hi Tristan, thanks for having me on, great to be here. Coming up, we cover some of the latest developments in PCR workflows, including how researchers responded to the issue of diminishing supplies during the beginning of the pandemic. One of the groups that did this was a group in Italy um, really early on. If you're in the middle of a pandemic and you don't have any supplies to do RNA extraction, you need an answer, you sort of innovate, right? <laughs> and um, they did. How some institutes rapidly set up large-scale, high-throughput PCR testing sites in a matter of weeks. They were doing 100,000 tests a day and turning them around in 24 to 36 hours. I mean, a lot of times they were turning them around in 18 hours. And get an insight into Ty's Wayne Gretzky-inspired opinion on the best ways to approach testing. 100% of the tests you don't take are going to be negative. But first, a word from our sponsor, Roche Sequencing and Life Science. Roche's LightCycler 480 system and LightCycler 96 system address your needs for innovation and dependability with their time-tested solutions. Benefit from Roche's experience in real-time PCR and achieve precise, consistent results with a full range of instruments, reagents, assays and disposables to fit any laboratory throughput or budget. Find out more at lifescience.roche.com. So Tyler, PCR diagnostics seems to have taken sort of center stage as the gold standard for COVID-19 testing. What properties of PCR tests make them so valuable? Yeah, I think it's, it's really three things that make PCR tests valuable in, in this type of setting, which is one, it's really easy to get set up. Um, it's quick. All you need is a genetic sequence from the bacteria or virus that you're, you're trying to detect. And you can design primers to target that specific sequence. The next is the specificity of PCR, meaning the rate at which you get false positives is really low for PCR. It's very specific. And so if you have a genetic sequence, you can make primers that are only going to target that virus and not any other virus. Um, And the third is sensitivity. And so we know because PCR is this cyclic amplification of a very small starting material, you can have very low levels of virus and still detect it using PCR. And so putting all those together, it's, it's always sort of the go-to gold standard for when this new emerging pathogens come out. And so the, the sensitivity of these tests, it's kind of been noted that they vary over the, the disease course of COVID-19. Um, c- can you explain why this sensitivity variation occurs? Yeah, I think, you know, we, we actually had a paper on this earlier this year. The, the sensitivity of the actual test stays the same. So like if, you know, if somebody has 10 copies of virus in their nose, we can detect that, whether that's at the beginning of the disease course or at the end of the disease course or the middle. But what does change is our ability, if somebody's infected, to detect them with a, a test like PCR or really any diagnostic test because they have different amounts of virus on board at any given time. And so if you think about the way the disease progresses, you get for COVID-19 infected with relatively low levels of virus. 
it takes some time to replicate to get to a level that is detectable by PCR. So even though you're infected for three days, you can't really detect it. So the sensitivity of detecting that disease in somebody is low at the beginning before they become high enough um, in terms of viral load to be detected. And then towards the end of the disease, you start to get really low levels of virus again after your body controls the disease. And so the sensitivity of picking up a person who has or has had COVID-19 varies over the disease course, but the sensitivity of the PCR test itself always stays the same. Okay, so um, it, it's more that that differentiation between this, the sensitivity of the test, which is is level throughout, but but the varying amounts of virus in um, in the sample um, throughout the inf infection course changing means that there's that difference yeah. in the. So as opposed to the sensitivity, maybe the the rate of of which false negatives are, are provided. That's right. So the clinical detection rate, it might be a way to, to think about that. But the clinical detection rate of somebody who has COVID-19 varies the disease course. The sensitivity of the actual assay stays the same. Okay. Um, and for COVID-19, you know, that you, you see is this like low level of virus, but this um, at the beginning when they, somebody gets infected, but there's a logarithmic um, amplification that goes on of the virus in your body. And so that spikes up really quickly. Um, so once it starts hitting that sort of log phase of growth, it spikes up quite quickly. And you can go from undetectable to quite high levels of virus within a day. Um, and then the disease course sort of like gradually declines over time as your body controls it. You end up having these really high peak and then it com comes down gradually. When it hits that log increase in the levels of the virus in your in your body, um, so you get that high peak. It's very easy for the um, PCR test to detect the presence of the virus at that stage. Um, how does this kind of map with the infectious period of the virus? Is, are you most infectious at the top of that peak, um, or is that later on? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Definitely most infectious at the top of that peak. And for COVID nineteen, what we found is that top of that peak occurs just before most people get symptoms, if you're going to get symptoms, right? And so you have, you know, this peak where you go from potentially undetectable to over a 24 to 48, 48 hour period, getting this, you know, this pretty high peak of wherever your, your peak of virus is. And for some people that could be thousands of copies per mil in the specimen we get, and others, it can be billions of copies per mil. I mean, there's a huge range of, of levels of virus that we see inside of people's nasopharynx and in their saliva. And so you, you get that peak really quickly. And at that peak is when you're most infectious. And so we know for COVID-19, people are most infectious just before symptoms and at symptom onset. And, and so the, the infection period sort of occurs as you, as you start to spike. You're basically infectious over, you know, most infectious over the next three to four days. And it gradually comes down depending on how quickly your, your body reacts and clears the virus. And then you're probably not infectious you know, for most people after like seven or eight days from symptom onset, even though we can detect you by PCR for, you know, sometimes a month later, because there's remnant pieces of virus left over and PCR is so sensitive that we're able to still detect that virus, um, even if it's dead virus living in the nasopharynx or in cells that have already cleared it, but there's still some virus particles sitting around that we can detect. So you just mentioned there that after seven or eight days, it's unlikely that people are still uh, going to be infectious. It, does that remain true even if the um, infection is still in full flow and the person's body is, is not fighting off the infection? Certainly there are some exceptions, people who do not get rid of the virus quickly on their own, who maybe have compromised immune systems 
or other reasons why they're not um, clearing the virus as well. Um, but but for most people, you know, probably, you know, greater than 95% of people, I think, um, the data that have come out have shown that we can't culture live virus from people who are more than eight days out from their symptom onset. Um, that was, you know, that was true in a small cohort of patients early on in the pandemic. Um, and larger studies have, have shown that that sort of proves to be the same. And potentially some of the new variants um, seem like they're more infectious because they have a longer half-life of a virus in the than the person, and so it takes longer for them to clear, and so maybe those people are infectious for longer. So maybe some of the new variants that that maybe that data will be like ten or eleven days, where the people are still infectious post symptom onset. One of the key aspects of PCR testing process um, is obviously the sample collection. Um, so now, at, at the beginning of the pandemic, this pretty universally involved um, nasopharyngeal swabs, but this has since sort of diversified in several different methods now. Um, what are some of these subsequent methods and what, and what drove that change to, um, to try out those different methods? Yeah, you're right. At the beginning, everybody was doing nasopharyngeal swabs or NP swabs. And the reason for that was because that was a gold standard. We, we know that for like the flu and for other diseases that we can, we know that the virus lives in the nasopharynx and, and that seemed to be true for COVID-19 as well. And so we, everybody started doing NP swabs. And, and when you, once you start doing something and start getting data for it, everybody just wants to stay with the same thing, right? While they're getting their test up and running. Um, but as, I don't know if you had an NP swab early in the pandemic, they're not super comfortable. And it became very clear uh, very quickly that people didn't like getting an NP swab. Um, you know, people would come back and say they tickled their brain and we, we, we would do testing. We were, I, I was involved in doing COVID-19 testing by PCR for Boston City at large. And that was you know, early on, end of March, early April, where we were doing these testing in these community sites. Um, and people would come out and didn't, really didn't want to get the, the NP swab. They, they would come in and they would get antibody testing, but they didn't want to do the NP swab because they heard from their friends that it was terrible. And so people started looking for other methods. Um, that would allow for more frequent and routine testing. So then people started testing out to see if other methods would work as well as NP swabs. And so they started testing for the anterior nasal, which is essentially just using a Q-tip or, or something equivalent to swab the anterior part of the nose, just the lower part of the nose, which is really non-invasive, or mid-turbinate swab, which goes a little bit farther back, um, just to where you start to feel resistance when you sort of stick keep up your nose. Um, and then more recently, uh, people have been trying to do saliva-based testing and have done saliva-based testing, and now several EUA-approved assays out there based on saliva. And so that just requires somebody to spit in a tube. Um, and the collection is much easier. You don't need a healthcare provider um, to be there to, to do that. And so I think now almost, I, I've, there are very few people that are actually doing NP swabs anymore. People are basically either doing mid-turbinate nasal swabs or anterior nasal swabs or saliva. Uh, and I suppose as they make up such a critical step, obviously you, you can't detect something if you haven't collected it effectively. Um, so how do each of these sample collection methods impact the, the sensitivity um, of, of PCR testing? That's a great question. I mean, there were, we, for PCR-based testing, especially for COVID-19, 
we always have controls um, in every sample. And so every time that we test a person sample for the COVID-19 virus, we also test it for human um, RNA to make sure that somebody actually got a decent swab and there were human cells there uh, and that we can detect. And for a lot of people, it's RNSP, which is, is a gene that is at high levels of expression in, in human cells. And so what we found early on in the pandemic, if people didn't collect a good swab, even medical providers weren't collecting a good swab, we would not detect human virus and that sample would be invalid. And so obviously you're right, if you don't get a good swab specimen, you, your sensitivity goes quite lower than, than what is being reported. And so we've gotten much better now. I think there, there are fewer and fewer invalids. People have gotten used to doing tests. The anterior nasal, you'd go around about 10 times each nostril. It really makes sure that um, people are getting enough human sample there to be qualified as a valid specimen. And then for saliva, it's super easy because it's, you know, there, there's tons of RNSP in your saliva and it's really hard to not get a good saliva sample, right? Like you essentially, as long as you weren't drinking a ton of water right before you take the saliva sample, there's plenty of there's plenty of virus and plenty of of human sample there and so very rarely do you get an invalid sample for a saliva sample fantastic um and do you need to consider which sample collection method has been used um uh, alongside any other aspects that may affect um pcr sensitivity when you're analyzing the results from them yeah so every you know every time you add a new specimen type you have to validate that your sensitivity is as good as the last one, or at least validate what your sensitivity is. And so for, for saliva-based testing, a lot of the um, tests do extraction free, and we can get into that a little later what that means. Um, th there's a different type of testing, but the sensitivity remains quite high. And so you might run a different type of PCR on the saliva-based test versus the nasal test. Um, but you, but the sensitivity has been validated for all of these to be about equivalent. Um, maybe NP swabs are slightly more sensitive, but uh, I think people are happy with the trade-off of having slightly less sensitivity, but uh, having a much more um, easy sample collection. I suppose the um, the important things, because I think I had an, uh, an NP swab, and, and you're right, it really isn't pleasant. Um, and yeah. I think if you're wanting people to to get to a place where they're conducting these these tests at home, um, perhaps prioritizing obtaining a, a really good sample is, is definitely worth that that sort of minute or small trade off in the um, that small trade off in the sensitivity of the test afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the the goal is to get people to be able to get routine testing and not be afraid to get tested because a hundred percent of the tests you don't take are going to be negative, right? Uh, and so like, unless you're taking that test, you have you have zero sensitivity um, to pick somebody up who has COVID-19. So you want it to be easy for those people to, for, for anyone who is suspecting that they might have symptoms or were exposed to go out and, and you know, be willing to get that test. And so the sensitivity we're talking about difference here is, is really minute, right? People, I, there are people have thrown around different numbers about what, what the, quote unquote, infectious level is, but maybe something around a million copies per mil of sample collected is the infectious level. And almost all these tests have something around a thousand to 10,000 copies per mil as their limit of detection. And so 
even the least sensitive tests are still picking up people who are infectious, you know, very easily picking up anybody who's infectious. So maybe that nasal, anterior nasal swab versus the NP swab doesn't pick up that person who was infected, you know, three weeks ago because there's like a tiny amount of virus there. But that person isn't, isn't infectious anymore. And do we really care to pick them up as, you know, somebody who's got COVID-19? Unless you're in a hospital setting and you're like, I want to know this person's diagnosis because I want to know what their symptoms are from, then it might be really important. But if you're trying to do a public health outreach and say, let's get the people who are infectious with COVID-19 in quarantine so they don't infect anybody else, then you know the level of sensitivity for all these tests is, is equivalent essentially. So, so you've mentioned there the um, the sort of the public health perspective of of, of testing, um, and early on in the um, in the pandemic, sort of various institutions set up their their own testing regimes to sort of contribute to this this massive public health effort. And your institute, the the, the Broad Institute, was was played a, a big part in this. Um, can you tell us a little about the um, the testing regime that they set up? I, I believe they've now conducted over twelve million tests. What was it like to be around that testing program at the time? Yeah, um, the Broad Institute's testing program and their initiative was was quite amazing. You know, I wasn't directly involved in any of of setting that testing up. I was at Massachusetts General Hospital, where I'm one of the senior clinical pathology residents, and where was helping set up testing at MGH for our hospital patients. But the Broad Institute, sort of just across the river, which I'm affiliated with, um, they basically took their genomics platform and they transformed it over a couple of weeks into this massive PCR testing site for COVID-19. And there was, you know, a ton of leadership, lots of people who changed changed their uh, their roles overnight to push this forward. But they, you know, they did it with the belief that this is what was needed to help with this pandemic. And they had the skill set and the sort of knowledge to to make this happen. And so they they set up using automation, and they bought a bunch of new equipment, um, essentially an automated workflow, so that samples could come in. They hired about 250 new people to accession all the samples. Um, and they, they essentially have a assembly line of dozens of automated machines and dozens of PCR machines um, to take a sample in, accession it as a, um, a sample in their, their log so they know that it belongs to the correct patient. And they put it on this assembly line and they extract the RNA from the sample using automated robotic liquid handlers. And then they, they take those plates out and they stamp them using another machine into PCR plates. And they take those PCR plates and run them on a, on a PCR machine and get the results out and report them out. And at some point over the summer, got to a point where they're doing 100,000 tests per day. Um, at a single site, and it was something like 5% of all tests in the United States were being done at the Broad Institute at that time. That is I mean, it, it was, you know, it was really, incredible. It, it was really amazing. Yeah. And, you know, I'm very, very proud of that, that they were able to do that. You know, that was, that is like sort of the promise of, of PCR testing um, at a massive scale that if you could have had, you know, a site like that in every state, imagine how many more tests we could have done and how many people we could have identified and got isolated 
to try to stop the spread of this disease. I think it's um, quite but, interesting yeah. as well, because um, I think quite often the thing that's um, sort of cited as a, as a drawback of PCR testing is, is the speed of it compared to antibody or antigen testing. But, yeah. but what you've really highlighted there is that um, you can set it up to be quite a high throughput technique. Um, and to, I mean, obviously this is an exceptional case, but um, to deliver really quite astonishing levels of, um, of testing in, in quite a short time scale. Um, and yeah, exactly. I mean, they were doing a hundred thousand tests a day and turning them around in 24 to 36 hours. I mean, a lot of times they were turning them around in 18 hours, they would have the results back to people. I mean, it was, I mean, people that would ship them overnight, right. They would ship them overnight from a, a college or something. They would get them, they were running 24 seven. They would get them, accession them, run them the next day and have the results 18 hours after the person collected their test. I mean, it's just quite amazing. It's astonishing. Um, uh and in the um, the setup and the development of that testing program, um, were, were there developments? Um, so obviously you, you've noted there the um, the sort of that production line effect and and the amount of automation that was included in it. Did this kind of lead to developments in the the workflow process um, and and sort of general lab practices around PCR testing that have um, that have improved the speed? I think there was a number of innovations that had to occur from a workflow standpoint that they were able to, they were able to put together um, to try to increase that capacity as well as the, the speed. And then I think, you know, outside of the Broad Institute, there've been a number of, you know, improvements from the initial CDC assay that came out that was a single primer per reaction for one of three genes in the um, SARS-CoV-2 genome, um, where now they're doing a single PCR reaction from most people doing single PCR reactions that are multiplex, meaning that you only have a single reaction per sample. So this, you know, if you imagine in the beginning, it was four reactions per sample. Now it's one reaction per sample. And then following on from the, um, I suppose, the, the sample um, sort of collection aspect of it, then obviously another key aspect is is the RNA extraction to to conduct um, that that PCR process and begin that PCR process. This is something that's changed um, in terms of people's approaches to it, in terms of whether they extract RNA or or don't. Can you explain the reasoning behind taking either of those two options? Yeah, I actually think this was one of the biggest innovations um, that occurred in SARS-CoV-2 testing is the ability to go directly from the sample to PCR without doing RNA extraction. And so the way that the original CDC assay was set up and the way that we do lots of um, PCR testing is that you take a sample, whether it's a nasal pharyngeal sample or a nasal swab or even saliva, and you extract the RNA. So you use a, a relatively um, complicated process to get rid of all of the other materials except for the RNA that's, that's there from the sample, and then you purify the RNA. So it's just RNA plus water. And that's what you end up putting into the PCR reaction. But that process is, is costly and it's time consuming. It takes a couple hours to do the RNA extraction process. Um, and it's probably the most expensive part of the actual PCR test. And so um, what people had done early on somewhat as a necessity because we were running out of the supplies needed to do RNA extraction was that people started playing around with being able to go directly from the sample without doing RNA extraction. And so there were a couple groups that sort of innovated and, and pioneered this. 
you know, University of Illinois set up their own testing sites um, using saliva and to do an RNA extraction free uh, saliva based PCR. And, and they, you know, they set that up for necessity. They wanted to test everybody on their campus twice a week and they had you know, 10,000 people on their campus or something or 15,000 people on the campus. So they, they set it up so that they could do this testing and they spent a lot of time and published a really nice paper showing that if you change the different buffers and different collection material that you can actually do this with really high sensitivity. And then one of the, the groups that was the first to do this and, and sort of pioneered it was a group from Yale who's, who created Saliva Direct, which is an EUA approved saliva-based assay um, that hundreds of labs now are, are running around the country um, under that EUA. And they, they did a similar thing where they took saliva-based testing and did no extraction of the RNA. All they're taking is just neat saliva, meaning direct saliva, no preservatives added, nothing. So all you really need is a tube to collect. So it's the minimum amount of material for collection. It's a minimal amount of material needed for the PCR. And so it allows you to do PCR at a lower cost and a higher capacity. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of labs that have moved to doing that. And I think that's probably the biggest innovation that's occurred throughout this from in terms of PCR. Um, so is it, but, is it the sample, uh, um, the saliva sample collection that, that has allowed this no RNA extraction pro, um, sort of protocol to develop? Um, or is it just um, that those two things go together well? I would say that those two things go together well um, because it's easiest to collect because you don't need a swab, you don't need any um, viral transport media or VTM, which is something that we were struggling to, to find during the height of the pandemic in the spring as well. And so it, from a capacity standpoint and a supply chain standpoint, those things go together really well. It's like sort of the cheapest way and the fastest way to do a PCR test. But there are methods that people have developed and published that are extraction-free for nasal swabs as well. Um, I think the sensitivity for extraction-free from a nasal swab is slightly lower than um, from, from doing RNA extraction from a nasal swab. But one of the groups that did this was a group in Italy um, really early on. If you're in the middle of a pandemic and you don't have any supplies to do RNA extraction, you need an answer, you sort of innovate, right? <laughs> and um, they did, and like I said, even though it's a slightly lower uh, sensitivity, it's better than not doing a test. And so that's, you know, that's, an, op that's an option. If I could give you one thing um, to improve PCR testing for COVID-19 in any way that you think would be the most impactful, what would, it, what would you ask for? I think that our PCR lab-based PCR systems right now are, are about as optimized as they can be. But I think the thing that's missing from this pandemic um, to really um, stamp out COVID-19 spread is sort of an immediate answer uh, for whether somebody's infected or not. And so if there was one thing that I wish, some <laughs> fancy piece of tech, it would be that we could figure out a way to be able to do a rapid PCR in somebody's home, <laughs> right? If you were able to essentially create a device that could, somebody could spit in a tube and there would be sort of like a, a thermocycler or PCR type machine that would be cheap enough uh, and be able to give an answer for that person in real time, like you know, within an hour of somebody being able to test that. Because you could imagine if everybody had access to a machine like that um, and people were able to test themselves routinely at home, 
you could you really just stop the pandemic in its tracks. Right? If everybody could test themselves twice a week or three times a week, it'd be very easy to identify who was there, who needed to be isolated, who had been exposed. Um, and also, you know, keep schools open because if somebody's exposed and all of a sudden everybody has to be quarantined, but if you could just be testing everybody every day, um, you'd be able to identify those cases um, and leave everybody else in the in the classroom. And so, you know, there, there's there are tests out there like rapid antigen tests that have the promise of this. They're not as sensitive as PCR, um, and they have some of them have some false positive rate um, that's higher than PCR, but they they get at this this principle of just widespread testing for from a public health perspective. Um, and if we could get PCR to be able to do that, that would be amazing. Well, it would be, uh, be a quite quite the future when, when everyone's got their own sort of portable PCR on them uh, at all times or, or in their <laughs> homes right. and in the classrooms. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's quite a, it's a, it's a funny thing that you end up wishing for, isn't it? Yeah. Tyler, it's been really great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's been fun. Thanks for having me on. If you found the topics discussed in this episode captivating, you may be interested in Roche's Light Cycler Systems, offering high-performance, real-time PCR. Find out more about Roche's Light Cycler Instruments at lifescience.roche.com. Let me know your thoughts on today's podcast at SciTristan on Twitter, where you can also get in touch if you have any suggestions for topics that you think we should cover in future episodes. If you have enjoyed this episode and would like to find more like it, you can find Talking Techniques on Acast, Spotify and Apple Podcasts, or look for the podcast section on our website at www.biotechniques.com. Thank you for listening. Stay safe and goodbye.